Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, uh, Zach, for that. That was fantastic. And uh, isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord, to share together, to praise God. Welcome those of you that are joining us online. And we are beginning our new series in the uh, book of Daniel. And we are going to be turning to 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now, as, oh, sorry, 1 Samuel, not the book of Daniel, the story of David, 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now, as we begin this, sto- this story, let me just uh, put some little things in uh, context for you at the moment. First of all, when we look at the book of Samuel, we understand that Samuel is a historical book. And as we understand uh, Daniel's, um, David's story, the historical book of the book of Samuel, how do we understand history? Well, the one way that we do understand history is that often we see history as factual. Of course, the story is based in fact and story. But what it is, is that in modern history, we're always looking for the facts. We're always looking for the exact details. Ancient history was written to tell us one thing. And ancient history was written to tell us here about the narrative of God and the story of God. And when they used to write ancient history, they would talk about the greatness of God. And the reason we have the story of the book of Samuel is to tell us one great truth. And this great truth is this is that God, he is great. And that you can trust him. And that he is with you. Originally, the book is one big book, not one Samuel and two Samuel. And originally, it was put together and it would be read as one story. It's the history of of Israel. And that's how we... uh, Um, you know, now we think of it as uh, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. And that took place in the Greek period when uh, the Greeks translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek with Ptolemy the Great, the king of Egypt, and did us a massive favor. It was then that they separated 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel from one book to two books and then created that moment. The author is unknown. We don't know who wrote the book of uh, Samuel, uh, and it definitely wasn't Samuel. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, because in the middle of the book, he dies. So it's a bit tough, isn't it, when that takes place? I mean, uh, I mean you know, um, it makes it a little bit hard. But Samuel is an interesting individual because Samuel is the last of the judges, Not only is he the last of the judges, but he is also a priest. He's not only a priest, but he is a prophet. He's this kind of superhero guy that is able to be this character, that character, and he's he's one of a kind. He is one of a generation. He is the shift from the judges of the history of the judges, where the Spirit would come on the judges and they would lead great reformation and they would come in power and they would come in anointing and they knew what God had asked them to do. Although when you read the story of Samson, you're not quite sure that he knew what to do, right? He was like making it up as you go along, yeah, God. 
he was, he was an interesting character and we've preached on him. But Samuel was the last of this. So when was the book of Samuel put together? Well, it was put together in its current format, probably in, well, in Bab- Babylon, while they're in exile, in 560, between 560 and 539. This was the period when the destruction of the temple, they were taken to the land and they assembled all of the ancient writings and they started to put them together in this format. Now, why did they assemble the writings and what is the message? Well, message number one is that God is great and his deeds are great in the world. Why? Because they were in the middle of a crisis of faith. Have you ever been in a crisis of faith? Have you ever been at that moment when you've wondered and you've said, I'm in a crisis of faith at this moment and I don't know what the answer is. I feel as if I'm in exile. I feel as if I am lost. I feel as if I have lost that direction within my life. That is so, so tough and so difficult. What would do we have to do? Well, we have to remind ourselves of God's great works and we tell ourselves, I'm in crisis, the temple is destroyed, it looks like the nation is gone, God, what are you going to do? They, they assembled all the great writings of the history of Israel and they reminded themselves that despite everything looks terrible, God is great and God has a plan. And maybe in your life you need to know that. Maybe you're in a crisis of faith. Maybe you feel you're in exile. Maybe you feel as if you've lost your direction and you're going, that's why Jerusalem is central to Samuel's, uh, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. That's why the battle there with Jerusalem and the Jebusites is central because the people are in crisis and they need to be reminded that God was with the nation of Israel from the beginning and their history is guided by the hand of God and that God is in control. And today, let me just remind you something, that the history of the world is guided by the hand of God and God is in control. And so now we have the first start of the story as we understand in 1 Samuel 16, And the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse in Bethlehem and I have chosen one of his sons to be king. What is the theological power behind the history books? What is... What is the theological framework by which we read the history books? We read them in what we call the theology of retribution. Now that may seem a strange phrase, but the theology of retribution is simply this. When you obey God, God blesses you and is with you. When you disobey God, things go badly. It goes right the way back 
to the um, Torah and right the way back to Exodus and right the way there that if you serve me and follow me and obey me, you will be blessed. But if you do not serve me and do not obey me, then you're going to have a lot of problems. In other words, you can either be cursed in your life or you can be blessed in your life as a nation. And the question that Israel is saying to themselves is, they're kind of, they're going, how on earth did we get in this mess? We're in, we're in exile. We're lost. We need to look at our history and we need to work out why we failed. And the reason Israel failed was because of disobedience, disobedience, disobedience. And that disobedience, after a while, brought a great curse. And God said, I'm done with you and you're going to go into exile. And so when you read the history books like Judges and Ruth and you, you read uh, Samuels and, and the Chronicles, you understand that it is a theology that says, come on, you've got to live in obedience, you've got to live right, and when you live in obedience and when you live in a right way, you will be blessed. That's why obedience is so important to all of us. That's why it's important to follow the voice of the Spirit. That's why it's so important that even when we feel we have a crisis of faith, that we know that God and God's great works is happening. That God is with us. So we have the story of these next 13 verses. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul? Since I've rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of you. One of his sons to be king. Now notice, first of all, God is saying to Samuel, it's time to move on. Come on. It's time to move on. The king that we anointed with a flask now has disobeyed me to such a point that I need to move on. And Samuel, you need to move on and get in step with what the Holy Spirit is doing and you need to move on. And now that I am doing a new thing and I want you as my judge, as my priest, as my prophet to go and to anoint a young boy in Bethlehem. I'm moving on. I think the church today and where we're at, we need to be very aware that God is doing a new thing and God is challenging us and we've got to move on. We can weep for Saul and how it all was, but we've got to look towards David and what God is going to do. He's going to move on. And even in our lives, sometimes, yeah, we grieve and we grieve and we grieve. And sometimes God just comes to us and says, now come on, it's time to move on. It's time to know. I'm going to anoint him. Now I want you to use a horn. A horn. This is very interesting because when you no notice when Saul was anointed, he was anointed with a flask. A flask of oil was brought 
and he was anointed. But a horn in the ancient world represents something profound. A horn represents power. Powerful anointing. We have other illustrations of horns in the ancient world, just a couple. One in Egypt of an Egyptian pharaoh and one in Syria of a, um, a, Syrian, a Syrian king. And it says, we anoint the king with the horn full of oil because he is the greatest and the most powerful and he will achieve great things and mighty things. You see what the Lord's doing here? He anointed Saul with a flask of oil, but here with David, he, he sends Samuel and says, come on, I'm going to anoint him with power. I'm going to anoint him. I'm going to give him a special anointing with power. But Samuel said, how can I go if Saul hears about it? He will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. I love the way the Lord gives advice about how he can get around being killed. Go on. Uh, what am I going to do with this? Because if he finds out I'm going to anoint another king while there is already a king, I'm going to be in trouble. Oh yeah, you are. The Lord says, well, go and have a worship service. Okay. It's... But the issue is that Samuel was afraid. He was still feared. His relationship with Saul had so disintegrated that he was being... He was battling fear within his life, even though God was asking him to do something. And sometimes in our life and sometimes in our journey, we battle fear, even though God himself is asking us to do something. And fear can hold us back. And fear can, can, can constrain us. And yet when we hear the voice of the Spirit, we need to be obedient and need to say, no, perfect love casts out all fear. If God has said it, God will do it. I will trust him. I'm afraid of Saul. But God will bring us through because it's now a new time. And fear can hold us back. Fear can wrap us up. Fear can, can be that chain that holds us. He says, take a heifer and sacrifice it. Invites Jesse to sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint me, the one I indicate. In other words, God is going to show you the person. God is going to indicate it. God is going to lead him. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? I mean, that's, I mean obviously Samuel had such a reputation as a judge as a priest, as a prophet, they were like, Whoa, what is going on? We're just little Bethlehem, a little tiny little place. This is like, you know, Beaverdale. And suddenly, everybody turns up. What is going on? You know, the prophets arrive, everybody arrives, all the Beaverdale people come out. What's going on? I've just come to have a worship service. Oh, good, you're not going to... You know, have you come in peace? Have we disobeyed? Are we out of favor with Saul? We know he's a little bit erratic at the moment. He said, no. 
I've come in peace. And Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves to the Lord and sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Elab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said, To Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Even here, Samuel is sort of slipping back. Do you remember the story of Saul? He was head... And shoulders above everything. He was handsome. He was gorgeous. He was like, whoa, look at his hair, the way it flows. It's like a hairspray advert. He's amazing. And, and then Samuel sees Elalab and looks at him and goes, oh, that's got to be the one. I love appearance. I love, he's so good looking, he's so handsome, he's so tall, he's so regal, he's so amazing. And God, and you know, as Aristotle once said, he said, really good looking people, when they arrive, it's like a reference. They bring their reference in. Even the Greeks recognize the power of good looks, the power of height. I'm not very high, although I have a, I always... And people ask me, I say, I'm six foot two. Uh, but, but it's that power, that stature, that strength. And the Lord looks at him and says, uh, no, we're not going down this line again. I'm not choosing because of outward talent and charisma and looks. I am choosing because of what I have done in the person's heart. He is fit to serve when I show you him because of his character, because of his desire to God, because of who he is. And we live like in a generation that is absolutely obsessed by vanity, by charisma, by lux. And yet, what the Lord is always asking from us is what is our heart? What is going on in your heart? What is happening deep within you? Because God does not look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the inward. And we've got to attend to our inward landscape. We've got to attend to our inward heart. We've got to attend to our character, to form the fruits of the Spirit within our lives, to allow God to bring godly character traits into our lives and delete the negative traits that hold us back. And here we see the most famous, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abadab and had him pass in front of Samuel, but Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. And then Jesse had Shammah pass by, and Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Uh, you can imagine this is 
And then Jesse had seven of his sons pass before him. Is that, that seven, eight, nine perhaps? Uh, pa- he's got a lot of sons going on. Pass before him, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep, Samuel said. Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. Several things to notice in this passage. We understand, first of all, He says, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. Now when it uses the word youngest, the Hebrew interpretation could go either way. And I like the other way. The same word is the smallest. I like that. Here is the youngest Here is the smallest. He's not only small, but he's forgotten about. His father obviously has many other sons, and David is out there with the sheep as a shepherd, as a small, young boy. And yet God sees him on the hilltop and even though he is small, he is destined to become great if he allows God to come and use him. And for each one of us, we may feel insignificant. We may feel unloved. We may feel forgotten. We may feel small. We may feel as if we have nothing to offer, but I want to tell you with everything within me that when you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit on you and when the Lord points you out and you've been brought into the family of God, you are in the kingdom of God. You are not small. You are not insignificant. You are a son and a daughter of the living God and he is with you and you are not forgotten. You are not forgotten. Because the very nature of the text, of the way that is written, reminds us that he is forgotten. He is irrelevant. He is small. He is tiny. He is foolish. And yet God saw him and God said, I have chosen him. Why? He may be small, but his heart is for the Lord. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? And there is still the youngest, Jesse answered, the smallest. He is tending sheep. In the ancient world, uh, kings used to be called shepherds. Have you ever seen the tomb of Tutankhamun or Ramsay the Great? Images. What did he hold? Oh, a stick, a rod of power, and a little shepherd's hook, because he's going, I am the shepherd of these people. And here we see the shepherding heart that's going to come. The shepherding heart. Send for him. 
and we will not sit down until he arrives. So they sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and fine appearance and handsome features, which is sort of ironic after everything's just been said. But you see the priority of the scripture, the priority of God is first let's get the heart right and the character. And then it says he, he actually, in the Hebrew, it's like he's actually fine for the eye. So he sent him and had him brought in and he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him this is the one. Rise and anoint him. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And Samuel then went to Ramah. See, the Spirit of the Lord has powerfully departed from Saul. In fact, in the next part of the verses, we will discover next week that an evil spirit has descended upon Saul. And we have the juxtaposition of one that is pure and one whose heart is with the Lord and one who is small and one who is forgotten, but not forgotten by the Lord, who the Spirit of the Lord comes and rests on him and will be with him. And we have the picture of disobedience, of arrogance, of the descending King Saul, who comes so low that he becomes inflicted by evilness and by an evil spirit that grabs hold of him. So let me recap for a moment. First of all, as we consider this story, I want to remind you that this is in the context of a crisis of faith within the Israel nation and in the context of their going, what is God doing when this was compiled? And they needed to be reminded back in their history, God always had a plan. And when you think, what is going on? What are you doing? Trust the depth of God's plan and foreknowledge that he is going to be with you. Then remember, they asked the question and they were asking the question in the historical context of the establishment of these historical books in Babylon. They were asking the question, how on earth did we fail and why did we fail? What the history books answer is they failed because they chose to live a disobedient life. I was, I was on the internet the other day, not unusual, but I ended up visiting the British Museum because I noticed when I was reading the newspaper that, that, that they were doing an uh, exhibition of um, 
of ancient history, and, I'd, and you could buy tickets. Uh, oh, I mean, I didn't buy a ticket, but I popped on the site, and then it said, oh, you can do a, um, a little virtual tour of the British Museum. So I thought, oh, I'll do a virtual tour. This is about 11 o'clock at night. Michelle had fallen asleep. I'm there on my iPad, a blessing for every man. And... And I'm, I'm, I just read some my devotion and so on, and then I started going around the British Museum, and you can navigate around, and it was like it was like ended up in little ancient images. So I thought that's nice, like little figurines. And so I I followed it back as far as I could in the museum to little figurines, the kind of oldest point, and one of the oldest points was around this period of the kings. And they had discovered in Jerusalem 800 little idols all in the ground from this period. And the statement of the museum was that even though they were worshippers of Yahweh, it was pretty clear that a lot of people had a lot of hidden little idols all over worshipping other gods. Disobedience creates a curse. Obedience creates a blessing. Get rid of the little idols hidden in our lives and invite the Lord to come in blessing. Because this is what's this is the tension in this Samuel. It's a tension. Going to be good, and they're going. How did we get here 560 BC in by the rivers of Babylon? You got here because you did not make God number one, and I removed you. And I removed you. And so we look at our failures, we say, How did I get here? And often, the root out of a sense of failure is. Not always just asking why, because that can be very distant, but asking how, what, when, and Lord, what do I do next? What do I do? How do I get out of this mess? Because God looks at the heart. He moves us on. We mustn't let fear rule us. That even though you feel small, do you remember that line in Goliath, David and Goliath, he comes out and looks at him and he mocks him because of his size. David's strength was never in his stature, if you like, although he was handsome, we understand. His strength was in the anointing of the blessing of God on his life. And when he lost God, he lost his way. And when he kept God as number one, he walked the right way. And God foresaw all of this. And in many ways, Samuel is also being tested. It's the testing of Samuel. We don't hear much of him after this. He kind of disappears into the sunset. He's not like a mentor as he was to Saul, to David. He, he disappears. Some references. But the point being that he had to trust God 
set aside his fear and believe that God was always doing something and was doing something remarkable. And in your life, you will be tested. Put aside your fear. And the good news is this, that we have the Lord Jesus Christ with us. That there came a day at time in history at this same moment. There came a time in history when in Bethlehem a virgin gave birth. And although David is a prototype, if you like, and we can see the, the great king coming, but failing king, the great king came who did not fail. He was born in Bethlehem. He was the Messiah. He was nailed to the cross and on the third day rose again. And then he ascended and sent the Holy Spirit to the church. And you are now anointed with the Holy Spirit and you are on that journey of the kingdom of God. It's so interlinked. It's so wonderful what Jesus has done. Let's pray together. Maybe ask yourself a question about the little idols in your own life, hidden away. And say, Lord, I surrender myself to you. Lord, I search my heart. As we take the communion, take the themes that we've explored. The Apostle Paul taught us that when we came to communion, we should search ourselves and search our hearts. Pause and search your heart and search yourself. Hallelujah. Maybe you feel small, forgotten, insignificant, overlooked by family and friends, left on the hillside. You are not forgotten. The emblems you are holding in your hands tells you that you are dearly and beautifully loved. You are loved. God has a destiny for you. God has an anointing for you. God has a purpose for you. He's going to get you through this. There was an anointing of Jesus that happened at his baptism. And as he came out of the waters, as it were, the horn of God's power came and rested upon him. 
the oil anointed him from heaven in the form of a dove. And the Lord said, this is my beloved son whom I am well pleased. And as you take the bread and the wine, I just remind you, you are a beloved son, daughter of God. You have not been forgotten. Fear needn't ruin your life. God has seen you. God is with you. God loves you. It's on the night in which the Lord Jesus Christ took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you that the ultimate expression of the love of heaven was the man hanging on the cross, dying in our place. So thank you, Lord, for your body. The body of Christ broken for you. Eat it in remembrance of him. The blood of Jesus that takes away the sins of the world and takes away your sin and purifies your heart because God no longer sees you but he sees Jesus. He has saved us. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. Isn't it good? Next week we're going to hear about oh, an evil spirit on a king. And David knows how to play the, um, the harp. If you could prepare your harp for next week. Let's stand together. God writes ancient history to remind us that God is great and God is always at work. When you flick through the news, look at the TV screen and remind yourself, God is great and he is the Lord of history. He's the one behind all things.